Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Andre the III, whose latest novel is Gone So Long. This is the fourth novel, earlier novels, Dirty Love, which is somewhere between a novel and uh, novellas, Mm -hmm. Garden of Last Days, House of Sand and Fog, and then there's The Cage Keeper and Other Stories, and then I interviewed you for Townie, a memoir. Mm -hmm. And don't forget my first novel, Blues Man, which three people have read and two were my mother. It was published, though. Oh, yeah. Favorite published it in 93. It's my kinder, gentler book, to paraphrase George Bush Sr., Before we discuss Gone So Long, uh, before we went on the air, you asked me if I had read your father's works, and I hadn't. Mm. He was compared to Hemingway by something? Chekhov, more than Hemingway, in which I think is even higher compliment, although I loved Hemingway's work, and my father did too. He was a master short story writer, and it was an apt description of his work. He was a master. Did he read your work? Oh, yeah. You know, he died almost 20 years ago. He would read it in manuscript. He was one of the four or five people I would show when I was done with the draft. But I never trusted his judgment because he was my dad, so he loved it just because I wrote it. So I never listened to him. I I listened to my more critical friends. But you didn't have that much contact with him growing up because you were on the other side of the tracks. Yeah, yeah, I lived with my mom and my siblings. But, you know, it was a 70s divorce. Dad would come by on Sundays and take us out to eat and drop us off. And it was much more like a lot of divorces were like that years ago. When he read your stuff, did he comment on it? Were you okay with that? Oh, yeah. You know, look, he remains one of my favorite writers. So I, I did listen to whatever he had to say. But he wasn't critical enough. I, I really would push him to say, come on, man, tell me what you really think. Ah, oh, it's great, great, no, quite. <laughs> well, since you did know him and you were reading his, his work, I always wonder, because I know when I interview people, mm-hmm. sometimes who they are in a way interferes with their prose, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, I could almost hear them talking. Hmm. Was that an issue with your reading your father's material? It was because, well, not every writer, as you know, has a voice that's theirs. You know, like I think of Doctorow. Every Doctorow book had a different sound to it, which I really admire. My father had a very distinctive voice, and he did. His stories, I mean, he wrote very derivatively from his own experience, very derivatively. So I would reckon, well, there's my mother. There's a, there's his buddy John. Oh, there I am in that story. It, it, that was kind of interesting. Did it freak you out a little bit? Yeah, it did. Andrew Debuse III, now you finally have your own career, and it's been going mm. on for a long time now. And House of Sand and Fog even became a well-respected film. This particular book, I want to go back and come up with the origins because what you're doing here is fairly unusual for most novels. It sets up a meeting at the beginning Mm -hmm. and then takes us to the meeting at the end. So we sort of have to be with the characters while it's going on. Mm -hmm. Was this the original intention? Well, 
You and I may have talked about this last time, but I, 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 I tend to write, like a lot of writers, very intuitively with my gut. I don't structure or plot stories in advance. I find that it works much better for me if I, you know, if I set out not with something to say, but with something to find. What I felt in the very beginning was, you know, as you know, the book begins mainly from the point of view of, of Daniel, who's, who's in his 60s and is very sick. And he's not treating his sickness, and he has not seen his daughter in 40 years, and he wants to see her one last time before he dies. That's how it began. And it felt like a compelling start dramatically because I didn't know if he was going to ever get to see her. And so that led down the road that you describe. To me, it's one of the joys of creative writing is, is, is I, I'm writing to see what's going to happen next, too. Well, going back to that, the character of Daniel, Danny Ahern, and this is where the book began. How did he emerge? What what prompted you to go, wait, well, who you, is this guy? You know, it came from uh, life. I, I was uh, working on a screenplay about a, a, a man doing time in a Massachusetts prison. Long story I won't go into here, but it's a really interesting story about um, a man who changed his life in prison. And we'll never get out. And in the process of researching this screenplay, I interviewed inmates who'd done time with him. And one was uh, a very nice guy I bought lunch for. And he was in his 60s. And um, he gave me a lot of great details to work with. And as I was paying the lunch, I said, hey, man, I hate to ask, but why'd you do time? He said, oh, I killed my wife. And, you know, you know from having read my memoir, Townie, I have a particular, particular hatred for male violence against women and kids. And, you know, I took a breath and uh, paid the bill and said, and I just said, well, uh, you have kids? And he said, oh, yeah, but they don't want to see me. And I couldn't get that sentence out of my head, Richard, for three years. It lingered. And I really wanted nothing to do with it, just on a human level. I didn't want to step into that horrible human situation. But if I've learned nothing over the years as a writer, I've learned to trust what I'm curious about and to, and to follow it even if I don't want to. And that's how he came. And then I do this thing of sitting and staring and waiting for an image to emerge. And I saw this guy caning a chair in the sun thinking back. And that's where the novel really begins. So you begin the novel when you're beginning the first draft with Daniel. Mm-hmm. At that point, mm-hmm. third person, third person close. Mm-hmm. But the novel doesn't open with him. No. It opens with his daughter, Susan, and it switches back and forth between first person and third person. And as we learned by page three, mm-hmm. she's sort of writing a memoir. Mm-hmm. At what point did you realize, well, wait a second, this story isn't just Daniel's? Oh, good question. It was probably six months into the writing I wrote deeply from Danny and Daniel's point of view. As you know, present-day Daniel doesn't call himself Danny anymore because Danny was the one who did such terrible things. Again, what I love about creative writing, it's mysterious. I could just feel a, you know, this little tug from his grown daughter down in Florida. I want the microphone. And so I gave it to her and eventually discovered that she was an aspiring writer and she'd never really had good luck with it. And she suffered from depression and anxiety and, and she's 43 and... She begins to, to write the kind of book she hates. She hates memoirs, wants nothing to do with it, but that's what's coming. And it was in the revision process that that section got moved to the front of the book. When you say, you know, I discovered, mm. okay, what exactly does that mean for you? 
Yeah, you know, on one level, it sounds bizarre, right? You say, what do you mean you discovered? You're making this up, you know, but I'll tell you how it happens for me process-wise. I first have to begin with authentic curiosity. I mean, as I just said, I was, I was genuinely pulled to, wow, man, what if you've done the worst thing possible as a young man? You've made this beautiful baby, but she or he wants nothing to do with you, understandably. What would that be like? So I begin with the curiosity. And then for me, it's very important that I bring in at least three of the five senses just to get in the room, just to get in the private skin of this other human being. And when you do that, time, and this is what I really find myself teaching more than anything in creative writing classes, the wonderful alchemy occurs when the fuel is curiosity. And then you bring in some of the physical senses, and, and you bring in place, real place, because p- characters have to breathe somewhere, it starts to happen. It, things start to happen on their own, almost on their own. They, they start to say and do things that you didn't see coming. And, and then it's a process of allowing them to do that. And it's, it's kind of terrifying, but really <laughs> it's exhilarating too. Even if it's disturbing material, it's pleasurable. What I've talked to other writers about is sometimes when they try – to interfere with that process, almost mm-hmm. to bring things together in a way that satisfies them but may not be quite organic, a reader will always sense it and feel like they're being manipulated. I totally agree. And, you know, it took me a few years of, of teaching creative writing classes at the college level before I started to put it this way. But I think there's a profound difference between making it up on the one hand and imagining it on the other. And by that I mean just what you said. You know, anybody can come up with a a plausible, even entertaining, even compelling story. So this is weird, mysterious thing where your built-in shockproof detector goes off that Hemingway talked about, and it's a truth meter. It's just like in life. You know, people will, you'll know if someone's acting out of character or not. So, yeah, I totally agree with that. And and I've done it in my novel, House of Sin and Fog. It was going to, to a really tragic place towards the end of that book, and I didn't want it to. And I actually started to control it. And you know what? When I did that, Richard, it felt like if, if the novel were a dog, it just got hit by a car, and now it's crawled under the house to die. And I had to let go of the wheel and let it take its course. This particular book... At a certain point and gone so long, a third character, major character, emerges. (laughs) And that's her grandmother, who served as her mother after her mother was murdered, Lois, who is an overweight, elderly woman Mm. who runs an antique shop. Was that simply out of the blue, there's this woman? Yeah, yeah. Uh, She Once again, it's that kind of mystical, intuitive, strange dream world thing where so, I, you know, now I've got two characters talking, and then I feel the presence of another. Well, no, you know what happened? Writing from the point of view of Susan, I learned facts of her childhood and that she was raised by her maternal grandmother and that she was raised in Florida, which is a big thing, you know, you probably know in New England. I mean, everybody goes, retires to Florida. Were you familiar with the Tampa area? Yeah, I'll tell you why. For the last 10 or so years, I've taught a writing conference that Dennis Lehane and Sterling Watson started at Eckerd College. And I, I rent a car every time to go to the gym. And one day I went for a cruise around the back roads and discovered this little town of Arcadia, which is in cattle country, and it's full of antique shops. That was just a life event that ended up in the dream world of the novel. Once I know that Lois has raised Susan, I began to see her in that town. And then I began to do a bunch of research on antiques. You know, as you know, she's a real scrappy, uh, cantankerous woman. She was kind of refreshing to to write about. Putting yourself into the brain of a 
of a kind of nasty, hard scrabble woman. Kind of nasty, hard scrabble. But what I kept sensing, even from the opening lines of her passages, is deep pain, deep pain. And of course, we know why, but it felt real, too. It, some people suffer their pain quietly, and they still are sweet to people. But she's been taking it out on the world since, and it rang true to me, and I just kept following her. And I guess that was the same with giving Susan a husband, Bobby. Yeah, And Bobby. all of her previous boyfriends. Yeah, I discovered something interesting about Susan early on, that she's physically beautiful, at least by our current cultural standards, and that she's always attracted a lot of male attention, which has not always been easy for her. You know, she's had a lot of boys and a lot of men, but she's had a real tough time really loving them. And then comes Bobby, this interesting, I found him interesting. He's a musicologist, and he's a, he's a big fan of Ornette Coleman, the experimental jazz musician, and he's from Texas. He's like the first real sweet character who's ever shown up in any of my, <laughs> my stories. When you learn that somebody out of the blue, again, is just into one particular jazz musician, I mean, does that come from your liking the jazz musician, or do you suddenly go, oh, Jesus, more research? Both. More B. I love jazz. By the way, for years I did not like jazz because my parents, when they were, you know, they only were married nine or ten years, when they fought every night, they put on jazz very loud and turn it up so we wouldn't hear them fighting. And so I had this horrible association with jazz for years. And then in my 30s, I was cooking and Miles Davis came on. I said, what am I missing, man? So I've been listening to jazz a lot for years. And somewhere along the way, I heard an Ornette Coleman piece, and that lodged in my psyche. It was a chaotic, unattractive piece. It was really kind of hard to listen to. So in the writing process, it's really funny how, not funny, it's strange and beautiful how these fragments of your experience show up in your imaginal world. Bobby's an Ornette Coleman guy. He wrote his dissertation on him. So I went out and bought a bunch of Coleman CDs, and I listened to all of them. and 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 some I really like. But what was fascinating to me, and as you know from having read Gone So Long, Coleman's celebration of chaos, his belief that harmony and melody and tempo, tempo maybe, all share the same value, becomes a thematic thread in the book, which was news to me. You know Danny Daniel Mm. is up north, they're south. Now, by the time you get to them, his journey has already been written, is that correct? No, not written. Very early in the in the story, his mother, as she's dying three years before the story begins, she knows the new last name of his daughter. She tells him. So he Googles her name, and he finds her very quickly, the way you can now. He decides, I think this is in the first 20 pages, he is not going to just show up at her door after 40 years of nothing. Uh, so he's going to write her a letter first, send it to her somehow, then go down. And writing that letter, I learned so much about him, so much about him, in, in his voice, first person. And then I knew when he, when he finished that letter, oh, man, he's going to drive down to Florida. But the letter itself doesn't actually appear until much later in the book. I mean, we don't mm-hmm. know what he wrote, but you wrote it early on then. Mm-hmm. I did. And yeah. you, you just knew you were going to have to wait until she reads it because yeah. then you can get her reaction at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Richard Bausch, one of my favorite American writers, has a great line. He said, look, if you think that you're thinking when you're writing, think again. You're much closer to the dreaming side of your mind. So dream, dream, dream it through. Then he went on to say, but look, try to look at what you've dreamed the way a doctor looks at an x-ray and try to be terribly smart about it. 
And so the process you're describing is, is true, but I try to I try to do all that shaping after I found the story. And then I, I really am very conscious about where I introduce things for dramatic reasons. Well, when you say when you found the story, mm. at what point in the writing process, even in that first draft, did you know where it was going or did you not? I never knew where it you was didn't going. Know. And I never do. And it, it, it all, it's always better for me if I don't. If I sense that I really know where it's going, I also feel as if I haven't, mind the characters deeply enough because the f- I find the deeper I go into them, the more unpredictable they get. And so I did not know where it was going. I did know, I felt very secure that he's going to get in his truck and drive to Florida. One more technical question, which mm. is first person, third person, present tense, past tense. Yeah. How does that work for you? It's a great question. You know, there's a, a term that John Gardner coined I really like. It's called psychic distance. And all that means is the distance. It's the distance the reader feels from the events of the story. And the way you calibrate that as a writer is reaching for various point of view choices. But so much of this is also intuitive and aesthetic. As a younger writer, I wrote a lot in first person. And when I began writing in my 20s, I somehow had the idea that it should always be as close as possible. So I always wrote in first person present. I sit here. I look at Richard. I sip my water. You know, you are me looking at Richard. But that's not always what you want. So as you know, in this novel, there are all sorts of changes of tense and point of view. And I did it for various reasons around psychic distance, but also for sound. Danny is in the third person present. Susan is in the third person past, I believe. Yeah, she is. They also write, though, in past and present. Danny writes in first person past. She'll go all in all kinds of points of view in her memoir in progress. So what it means to me is if you're careful in how you do it, it can be very challenging to the reader and you're taking a risk. But I think it can also bring in a symphonic kind of texture that is kind of forward moving and aesthetically pleasing, ideally. I forgot who it was. Someone told me that... Um in talking about the difference between present tense and past mm. is that present is a more confining tense. Yes, I agree because it's confining because the, the sort of subliminal contract between the reader and, and the book is, oh, this is happening right now to this man or this woman. There's none of that air that comes with looking back. So I, I totally agree. And, and sometimes you want that effect and sometimes you don't. Themes, Hmm. well, obviously, if you're writing just to see what's going to happen, you're not necessarily thinking themes. In fact, I would think you're trying to avoid thinking themes. You're totally right, man. I I try to avoid – you know, you'll get a a vibe every now and then. You know, the way you do when you're sitting with a loved one, you think, Jesus, I think Uncle Harry's depressed. (laughs) You know, his whole life he's been depressed. I try to avoid having larger insights while I'm writing – because I'm trying to simply write with character and take them through the dream world of the story. But after, I look really hard for what this book is saying. At that point, are you going to fiddle with the book at all? Yes, extremely. You know, let me tell you, one of my favorite distinctions about story and plot come from the writer Janet Burroway. And she describes story as being, this is story, she says, and I'm, I'm with her completely. It's a causal sequence of events with a beginning, a middle, and an end doesn't have to be linear or chronological in its shape, but there's a causality. Plot, she said, is how we arrange that causal sequence of events. So I give myself permission to write for a long time to find the causality, to find the story. This happened, that happened. Oh, and then that happened. And sometimes what happens is interior. And as you know, this book is very interior. 
And then after that's through, that might take three years. Then I say, wait a minute now. You know what this book's really about? It's about bop, bop, bop. And then I start to rearrange scenes. Now that I've gotten smarter about what I've written. Does that make sense? But I, I find yeah. to do it in the middle of the process takes me out of the, the book completely. So what kind of massaging would you do after the fact? For instance, one of the themes in the book is the nature of forgiveness, Yeah, clearly. Yeah. Uh, how do you massage that, particularly, I would think, in the character of Lois, who has to deal with it in a way that Susan doesn't? You mean how do I massage it thematically? Yeah. I try not to on that level. I, I still ask myself what feels like the truest starting note for this character. As you know, with Lois, it begins with her sitting on the porch in her, you know, little house in the woods off the county road in Arcadia. Let me be very clear about this because it is kind of a weird, muddy little process. Even in the revision, where I have gotten smarter about what this story is about in a larger sense, I don't want to hit the reader over the head because readers are smart. People who read books, especially literary and character-driven fiction, they bring a lot of life experience and a lot of wisdom to books. Readers are sophisticated. So I, what I do is I look for images and dialogue and details that resonate throughout the narrative. And if I do that, I feel as if I've done enough thematically without, you know. There's a great line. It's like I can write it on a Salada tea bag in a, like a Tennessee hotel years ago. And here's the line. If your work speaks for itself, don't interrupt. And that's always stayed in my psyche as great writing advice. There's no actual political content in the, the book. I mean, mm -hmm. nobody talks politics. Is that deliberate or is that just because these characters just didn't? It's both. I think maybe the character of Susan and her professor husband, Bobby, might be more prone to deep political philosophical discussions, but not Danny and not Lois. But I also, Richard, try to avoid bringing in a megaphone about politics. I do think if, if a book goes deeply enough into character, it will always say something larger in that sense. And this book deals a lot with the horror of male violence against women. And it, it, it's a fairly timely thought, sadly, tragically, that we have to talk about that. I'm glad we're talking about it. I'm, I'm sorry that it exists that we have to talk about it. Uh, yeah, I was reading this book during the period of the Kavanaugh hearings, and it kind of resonated in a way that you perhaps didn't intend at I did the not, time. I did not <laughs> intend it, but, I, but boy, it does resonate. <laughs> right. As the book progressed, as this was coming out, and as we watched Susan deal with her various male friends or boyfriends, yeah. ex-lovers, and as we watch Danny deal with trying to come to grips with what he was feeling at the time, mm -hmm. the moment he killed his wife, he regretted it instantly. As this was going on, again, it just came out, mm -hmm. even though this is something that thematically goes through all your books. Yeah. What I learned when I was writing his letter from his point of view is that he was incredibly possessive and jealous. And that, that was a real surprise. I, I didn't know that. But I really believed it once he began to, to write this in his letter to his grown daughter he hasn't seen since she was three. And that informed so much in the narrative for me. What's strange is Susan's had her own experience with men in that Bobby's the first man who has never really possessed her. He lets her come and go as she pleases. She's an equal. He respects her. It's a healthy relationship. 
But that wasn't intentional on my part. It, it's just this weird symmetry that you find sometimes. One of the main themes in the book, in Gone So Long, is how our past shapes our present. Yeah. Given that, was that something that you noticed afterward? After and during. I was on a panel with a very uh, established, successful mystery writer. And, and he, he was giving advice to someone in the audience who asked him a craft question. And he said, listen, um, never, never start a book and go backwards. Always start with an action and move forward. Just put them in an action and have them move forward. And on one level, that's very sound advice, except I was sitting there listening to it on that panel thinking, but man, I, I can't go forward. <laughs> I mean, I, everything that I have ever done brought me to this chair. And, and so I think that the past of a character is always immensely important in discovering who they are at this very moment. And so with Danny and Lois and Susan, you know, this, this novel in so many ways is a triple reflection on their parts, on everything that got them to the moment that is now coming. And, and part of me was worried that, well, is this, God, nothing happens. They just sit there and remember and write backwards. Yet, I love what Faulkner said, you know, the past is not even past. Well, to counter what your mystery writer friend said, you sort of have to go into the past. When you pull out a gun from the handbag, somebody has to put it in. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and there are some guns in this story. There are. Yeah. There are. I would guess at the same time as you were moving forward, if somebody says something and it makes sense, mm -hmm. and suddenly it's one of those serendipitous moments where yep. things pull together, it happened because of something in the past. Yes, now, it's possible you can just talk about it there, but mm -hmm. it's possible you're going to go, well, wait a second, that needs to have been mentioned X number of pages before. You're totally right. And, and sometimes that's exactly what happens in the revision. You know, I, I'll read a moment on page 300, say, that I really believe, except I don't feel as if I've earned it yet, that I don't, you know, I, I, I try to make myself the reader when I read over what I've written. And so I have to go back and say, well, I, I do believe it happened, but I haven't earned it yet. And I go back and say, oh, well, here's a door. Here's a sentence I didn't open. And this will explain why 100 pages later there is that gun in that bag. Well, when you say I haven't earned it, what do you mean? I mean that on one level, and this is in the deep drafting revision process, my truth meter won't go off. I'll believe that this is there, yet it feels shallow. It's just, it's just a strange intuitive feeling. It feels like a shallow treatment, and there's got to be a deeper exploration of this moment. And sometimes that exploration doesn't have to happen on that page. Actually, it has to come earlier. So then I circle back, and, and I wait, and I, and I look. Did that happen quite a bit with, say, Susan and her boyfriend? Yeah. Susan Susan was the, was the character that I, that I really uh, struggled with the most, and, and I'm not sure— totally why, except I have a bit of a theory. I think I struggled with her. And by struggle, I mean it just it took a lot of rewriting before I really felt I had found her on the page. But let me speak to that for a second. There's a wonderful essay by the great Tim O'Brien, The Things That Carried Tim O'Brien, called The Magic Show, in which he says one of the most, I think, insightful things about character development in fiction. He said, really good character, to, uh, literary characterization is not a nailing down or a pinning down process where you, you know, you nailed the character. That, that's her, you know, someone like her. It's quite the opposite. The deeper you go, the more unknowable we get, the more mysterious we get, just as in life. You know, I've known my mother for 59 years. Who is that woman? <laughs> you know, 
I've been with the same wife for 30 years. Who are you? You know, on one level, we're a big mystery. And I think that's a real strength for the creative writer. So Susan took a while. I'm not sure why, but I do feel pleased with how she is now. Well, one thing is that people don't necessarily know themselves either, so that yes. makes your life slightly easier. Right. Well, and actually, Susan is really struggling for self-awareness and clarity as she's writing, and so I was struggling with her. Men and women think a little differently, and when I say that, I mean that if you usually read women's writing, it seems more introspective than men's writing. Does that... I, I, I think, you know, it's a generalization, but I think it's a fair generalization, which is why I prefer a lot of female writers. <laughs> I love I love that kind of writing. Did that make it easier for you to get into her head, you think? You know, I haven't thought about that, but why wouldn't it? I mean, some of my favorite contemporary writers are happen to be female human beings. You know, Elizabeth Strout is probably one of my all-time favorite uh, living American writers who happen to be female. And her, her work is wonderfully interior and um, forward-moving on, on that level. There's not a lot of action on the outside. I mean, if My Name is Lucy Barton. I don't know if you read that novel. It's incredible. It's a, a woman's in the hospital or a mother's by her bedside. That's what happens. And you can't put it down. Do you have your wife vet your female character? Yeah, well, she's my Fontaine is a uh, my wife is a dancer and a choreographer and a visual artist, and she's not a writer, but I really trust her opinion. So she's always my first reader. You know, it's funny she she really has nice things to say about my portrayal of women, but you know, in my novel House of Sand and Fog, for example, she finished it and she had some nice things to say. She said, "Oh, honey, by the way, wow, we don't call it rouge anymore." So, no, you know, that red stuff you put on your cheeks. No, honey, it's blush. Rouge is from the 40s and the 50s. So, I mean, she'll fix stuff like that. Now, what about trying to get the character of Lois right? Because here you're dealing with someone of a different generation going interior to her. I mean, she's the kind of person who would vote for Trump. Yeah, she would. She probably did. Oh, yeah. Did you have any difficulties with her in that She regard? came easier than I would have thought. And when I say would have thought because... Her experience, her life experience is nothing like mine, and, and, and that goes beyond being a, a, her being a woman and, and one in her 80s. Sometimes in writing, you just get a gift. You know, sometimes they just show up. It's, it's like dancing with someone. You know, I, I danced with a woman at a party once, and she's a, a colleague in the literary world, an older lady, and we had the most incredible dance chemistry, and it, and, and it felt like when, when a character just shows up. She just showed up, and her voice came, and, and I could feel all her layers of pain and anger. And, you know, I, I don't know if she'd be fun to be around in life, but she was fun to be around <laughs> on the page. Andre Debuse III, I'd like to talk a little about the rest of your career. I interviewed you two books ago. Mm -hmm. Somewhere in there came Dirty Love, which was linked novellas. How did that come about? And was it just originally going to be short stories? No, it was weird. And this has happened before. There are four stories in that book. And they were written between 1999 and 2000, and I think, 15, roughly. Two of them, Marla and the Bartender, they were the phoenixes that rose from the ashes of the novels that failed. And this is a weird story, and I don't know if we have time, but for years I was drawn to writing about a, a certain kind of con man I'd read about, the kind who does financial stuff to women. And I did some research, and I'm writing from his point of view, and, and I thought it was going pretty well. And then I 
I hone in. I want to go to his first victim. And I go to her point of view to get to know her. And she's this, you know, kind of homely, solitary, sweet young woman who works at a bank. And she's never found love. And within, I'm telling you, one writing session, she was 10 times more alive than this con man in whose point of view I've been writing for weeks. Back to the whole notion of making it up versus imagining it. And I realized just because I want to write about the con man didn't mean he wanted to be written about by me. His whole section felt made up. Hers felt real. And I didn't even really want to write about her, but I had to because she felt real. So ultimately, I let go of that novel. I had quite a few pages, maybe 100, and ended up with this 50-page story about a woman looking for love, and she finds it, and then gets really difficult. <laughs> and, and I stand by that story. The other one came from a novel. Same con man, tried again. I had a 250-page manuscript, and I get to this character of this bartender who's a bit of a, uh, he's an aspiring poet. He's not very good, and he's a bit of a uh, alcoholic and uh, womanizer. And he took over the book, and I cut the novel and just kept 50 pages of that guy. So this happens a lot, you know, and I don't want to compare myself at all to the great Ernest Hemingway, but there's a great story about the, his wonderful Pulitzer Prize-winning novella, Old Man the Sea. Do you know that it comes from a 1,500-page failed manuscript? A three-volume set called The Sea Book that Hemingway worked on for years. And he said the only thing worth a damn in this whole pile of pages is that story, The Old Man, the Fish, and the Boy. And But what I'm getting at is he had to create the entire oyster in order to find the pearl. And so that happened so often to me, too. And it happened with those two stories. The other two in that book, Dirty Love, came one after the other. Here's what's really weird. So I sent it to my editor at Norton, and she said, do you know that a lot of these characters actually cross over into each other's stories? I said, what are you talking about? Well, the, the lady who works in the bank, the same guy is in the other story who works in the office. And I didn't realize that there was more of a connection than I, I didn't even see it. And so I actually revised a little bit sharper to make the connection happen. But it was not planned. It was completely found in the revision. So you just had a character, nameless character, who turns out to be, from your editor's perspective, the character from the other story. Yeah. Well, if, for example, in The Bartender, you know, the, the title story is the longest one. It's about 100-something pages, Dirty Love. And it's told from the point of view of a 17-year-old teenage girl recovering from an online sexual terrible thing. And she's living with her great-uncle Francis, who's a widower in his 80s. They love each other very much. She works in the same bar that the bartender works at. But I didn't realize that until my editor pointed out. It was just a bizarre, bizarre thing. I went to IMDb, and of course there's material on House of Sand and Fog. There's also something five minutes long that you read for, World Gone Water? I have no idea what that is. How bizarre. I'll look it up. I have no idea what that yeah, just is. Just look up yourself. World Gone Water, huh? Well, I had to tell you, I never Google myself. It's a <laughs> recipe for anxiety. Somewhere along the line, I read that you've done a bunch of audio books. I have. Like I've narrated five of my books, and I really enjoy it. You know how it began? It began with my third book, House of Sand and Fog, which came out in 1999. HarperCollins wanted to make it an audio book. And I insisted. I said, look, I have to narrate it. The only reason I wanted to narrate that is because the main character is an Iranian colonel, and I speak, I was conversational in Farsi, and I didn't want some actor to 
butchered the pronunciation of Persian words. So I did that. But the other point of view in that book is first person, and it's a woman. And I come home from uh, something one day, and my wife, Fontaine, says, oh, by the way, honey, I'm, I'm, I'm narrating that book with you. I said, you are? Yeah, I called Harper Collins and I said, look, you can't have him narrate a female in the first person. <laughs> I reached from my blush and applied it to my cheeks. My wife narrated the other half. And then I enjoyed the process so much. I've, I've been doing the, the others. And I really had to do Towney. I didn't want an actor to do my memoirs. Why do you know Farsi? My name is I fell in love with a Persian girl in college. And I, I just got pulled into the whole beautiful culture. You mentioned before that you worked on a screenplay. Have you worked on several screenplays? No, I um, I worked on that one, and it was an arduous process. I don't really like writing screenplays. I think I'm going to do it again. My son, my oldest son, Austin's in L.A., and he's a screenwriter and a TV writer. He's 25. He's already doing really well. He and I may collaborate on a couple of things. I did write that one based on that inmate, and, and it's a really good story, and, and I think I need my son's help to to make it even better. It's very dense. I've tried to wedge a lot of life into a screenplay. What I don't like about screenplays is I hate writing interior, radio station. Richard speaks. I hate that. What I love about novels and fiction is you can make it textural and real. Interiority does not lend itself to dialogue. That's exactly right. And and I do, as much as I love film, and you know, we know that there were millions of wonderful artists working in that form, I do think as a form, it's hamstrung in a way to tell a human story that fiction is not. You know, because we get to be God. We get to go into a character's heart and mind, and we get to remember and think and feel. And, you know, you can do a cheesy voiceover. Sometimes they work. Goodfellas, the voiceover works. But for the most part... Filmmakers are stuck having to tell a story with moving images, and it's it's a harder way to do it. How many plays have you ever thought of that? Play? Yeah. I have because I used to act a lot. I haven't yet. Maybe I will. You know you know why? I'm, I'm a very slow writer, and, and I just love writing sentences so much. I enjoy it so much, and I'm slow, so I'm always working on prose. Did you uh, begin Gone So Long before you started Dirty Love, or would they in sequence? After, after. It was I, all after. Yeah, I can never work on two pieces at once. To me, I, I have to be monogamous in with my work. I mean, really, I, I, and I know friends, you know, beautiful writers who can. They'll work on a novel in the morning, a short story in the afternoon. But to me, that's like having a lover <laughs> when you're married. But I am very comfortable working on fiction in the morning and then working on an essay in the afternoon or, or the screenplay. It's like, it's like having a, a lover and a workout buddy. Speaking of that, the difference between fiction and nonfiction, uh, fiction, as you said, you take it, okay, well, what's going to happen next? Mm-hmm. When you're writing nonfiction, is it the same process for you? Well, in a strange way, yes, right? So when I wrote Towney, you know, I worked really hard to be as honest and, and factual in my memory as I could. Of course, the memory's fallible. The great Tobias Wolf in his wonderful memoir, This Boy's Life, has a great line, memory has its own story to tell. But in the same way, there is still discovery. When I was writing Townie, I was free from making up, finding the events, because it happened. I just now, but it made me, it gave me the freedom to simply put all my creative energies into trying to capture what it was truly like to be in those events. And within that, there was still discovery. 
which was really kind of fascinating. I would think this also be discovery of memories you didn't know you had. Yes, exactly, exactly. So you'll remember one thing pretty clearly, and as you describe it, it triggers a panel to open. You go, oh, and then that's right, then that happened. And then, oh, Jesus, I forgot there was that too. It came up for me, that whole idea about the nature of memory, not just from reading this, but then watching uh, Blazing Ford, Mm-hmm. trying to remember what was happening. And yes. then, of course, you've got Kavanaugh lying through his teeth. But Absolutely lying through his teeth. But from her perspective, what is memory? And, of right. course, how people attacked her for her memory. Well, I want to talk about that a minute. You know, um, I admired her testimony immensely because it, it rang totally truly because she told us just what she did not remember. Well, I didn't remember that. I didn't remember that. Are you sure with him? 100%. You know, the word to remember is a fascinating word. The opposite of remember is not forget, it's dismember. It's chop, chop, chop. So when we remember, we're putting the pieces back together again. And, you know, we may put them in the wrong order. We may reach for a piece that was actually a year later. But there is a story there that has some veracity. And I certainly believed every word she said. It also, once again, brings up the uh, violence between men and women, which mm. is still at the forefront because we have an assaulter in, in the in the Oval Office. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, tragically, man, uh, this is just. Look, I am a huge fan of the Me Too movement because it is putting all those men on notice. Listen, this is no more. Uh, stop. And the tragedy of Kavanaugh being elevated to the Supreme Court. The message is wide and clear. Listen, you female human beings, you're second class. You'll never be equal to us. You're here for our pleasure. Sit down and shut up. And it's outrageous. It's outrageous. I love this line from a Flannery O'Connor essay. She said, a writer's beliefs are not what she sees, but the light by which she sees. Whatever, you know, a writer's outrages or demons or wounds or, you know, that's going to come out in the dream world of the fiction anyway. And I think a lot of that does come out and gone so long. It's also a way, fiction is also a way to change people in a way that just telling them something never will. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, I'm sure you've had books that have changed your life, right? Oh, yeah. Gone in. Tim O'Brien once, you know, he's an acquaintance, he's an old friend, and and he wrote, he inscribed one of his novels to me, and he said the most beautiful thing, I thought, and he was just, he was getting ready to jump into a cab. It was, Andre, I hope this reaches inside Tim. And, you know, if I ever get a tattoo, I'll just put that in. I hope this reaches inside. That's the whole point, right? We hope that the books we write reach inside, reaches inside the reader and does something. And I know that I'm grateful for all the books I've read in my life that reached inside and did something to me. Andre Dubuse III, we're pretty much out of time. What do you have coming up? Have you started work on another novel or memoir? I have. Um, well, I'm in the preliminary. St- you know, in the past, I've jumped too quickly into writing something new because I love writing. And sometimes your, your well needs to fill a little bit. This one this one took a chunk out of me, this this novel, Gone So Long, in a good way, I think. So I've, I've spent the summer just reading and teaching and waiting for the next thing. It is coming. I can feel it. And it's a situation that I'm curious about. And so just as soon as this tour is over, I'm going to go back to my cave and sharpen my pencils and stare at that notebook and pray something will come. You don't have a voice yet. No, but I'm starting to hear something. It's very mysterious and exciting, really, and scary. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. 
You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.